Hey, friends. Uh, one thing I learned this morning is that um, a lot of you had opinions about my haircut <laughs> and my previous haircut. And uh, I appreciate your opinions, and I especially appreciate those of you who said, Matt, I love the long hair, but man, I also love the short hair. Thanks for that. I appreciate you. Uh, Before we take our offering this morning, uh, you'll notice in the pew in front of you, hopefully you'll see some of these envelopes, say Night to Shine on them. We are just less than two weeks away from Night to Shine, which is this uh, big, fun, uh, awesome event that we've been uh, hosting for the last few years. And um, this is an important envelope because this envelope helps make it happen and you help make it happen by uh, your financial contributions. This is a big endeavor. This is a big cost for our church, but it's something we believe in and that you believe in and participate in and have been doing for years. So uh, thank you for making it happen. But today, as we uh, come into the last stretch before Night to Shine, I'd urge you, um, if you can, if you're thinking about it, uh, would, you, would you give towards Night to Shine? Uh, this event costs some $30,000 to do, and we don't have like big endowments or anything like that. Everything we do comes from your generous and uh, willful and joyful giving. So uh, thanks for participating in ministry. Thanks for participating in Night to Shine through both your volunteering and your giving. Um, And thanks for considering uh, being a part of that. So appreciate you all. And these envelopes are there for you for that. So uh, ushers come down. We're going to take the offering and uh, let's pray as we come to the offering this morning. So God, thanks, uh, thanks that we get to do things like Night to Shine where we get to celebrate and uh, care for and show your love to uh, friends and family that could really uh, use more love from us and uh, from you. We're so grateful that we get to do things like this. So God, as we uh, give this morning, whether it's tonight to shine or in other ways, God, uh, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your calling on us. And Lord, we uh, do give with joy and trust that mighty things will be done for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Speaking of Night to Shine, uh, we do need some more volunteers. Specifically, we need some more buddies for Night to Shine. Now, uh, Night to Shine takes a volunteer army to pull off. Many of you are plugged in already, and we're so thankful for that. But really, this night can't happen without our buddies. We could probably be missing people in every other area of the event, but we can't make it happen without the buddies. This position, buddies, is uh, those of us who volunteer for that get paired up with a guest, and we spend the night dancing and, and hanging out and eating and just having a blast with with our buddy uh, at the event. So we had, unfortunately, some last-minute drop-offs this last week just due to circumstances, other things, and we need more buddies, not only uh, a group of about eight, but we need a, a significant number to kind of be, uh, I don't quite know what to call it, but to, throughout the night, kind of rotate in so buddies can have a break, get a chance to eat, and take a breath, because, uh, you know, those dancing shoes get worn out pretty quickly at night to shine. So we need, like, 20-plus people to sign up to be a buddy. Please, if you've even had an inkling of saying, how can I serve at night to shine, this would be how I would encourage you to do that. You can sign up on Church Center. Thank you, thank you for making Night to Shine happen. We appreciate it. Okay. Now, there's been a few, more than a few times in my life where I've realized just how unimportant I really am. 
Uh, I was on vacation a couple weeks ago. Now, I'm saying I was on vacation because we were not on vacation. Matt was on vacation. My wife, Taylor, she plans uh, medical conferences. She travels for those, and she was planning one down in uh, Puerto Rico for a couple weeks ago, and I said, Puerto Rico, January, I'm in. So I went on vacation. My in-laws came to watch the kids, so they were stuck here doing school and hockey practice and all that normal life stuff. Taylor was there on site, but she was working 18-hour days making this event happen, and I was on vacation, baby. I was sitting on the beach uh, working on my freckles uh, and uh, (laughs) just having a good time. So I got to go on vacation. Um, Now, Taylor, she works with groups of uh, medical professionals, mostly surgeons. This was a group of surgeons that she was there planning this event with. And I got to say, there's nothing that humbles me and, or will humble you like being around a group of like 400 surgeons for a week. It's a very humbling experience. These guys literally save lives, right? They get their hands inside of people, gross, and they save, they save lives. And, uh, you know, one evening we're there and there was a skills competition going on for some of the, the younger surgeons. So I said, oh, I'll go check it out. And I texting Taylor, like, is this a pants or a shorts thing? And she's like, pants, Matt, pants. These are professional. So I'm like, all right, I'll put on pants. So I go and I walk in the room and there's, you know, all these stations set up and they're like on machines and dummies, like practicing saving lives. And I'm walking in with my like pants, like, oh, hey, this is cool, you know, and not only was this a skills competition, but this was also a reception. So the ladies, they're dressed and they got, they got high heels and dresses on. The guys got bow ties. They got a drink in one hand, a scalpel in the other hand. And I'm walking around like, oh, you know, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I like, felt so out of place and so <laughs> tiny walking around that room. Being around surgeons will humble you, right? They save lives. They're beautiful. They're rich. They say things to you like, oh, I just played 54 holes of golf yesterday. And I'm like, I can't even get through nine. It's amazing (laughs) how humbled I feel. So my vacation was humbling. Um, I came home a little tan, although I hesitate to say I'm still tan, but that went away pretty quick. Came home a little tan and sort of feeling that existential crisis that only comes with uh, hanging out with people who are just way above your pay grade. So uh, that was my week. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get into the if-only mindset. Oh, if only. If only I had that kind of money. If only I could go to places like this by myself, you know, all the time. If only I could play 54 holes of golf in a day and and sort of wallow in that if-only mindset, feeling a little less than. But I'm always quickly reminded that that isn't God's perspective, That's not God's call on my life. And what I find myself valuing in those moments is not what he values. Because God doesn't value what we value. And he wants us to value what he values because honestly what he values is worth more. So we're going to go this morning to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is uh, going to talk to us a little bit about what God really values and what it means to follow him and be a part of his kingdom, the kingdom of God. So we're just going to jump right into Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2. Sort of set the scene. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So this sets the scene for this passage. Jesus has just started his public ministry at this point. He has uh, quickly become popular. 
He's gathered a group of disciples to to follow him, sort of intentionally closer, you know, this small group. And he's been traveling around uh, Galilee in northern Israel, healing people and preaching about the kingdom of God. And he's become popular. The crowds are flocking to him. And the chapter before this, we're told that not only crowds from the Jewish people are coming, but people are coming from Syria to the north and from the Greek-speaking cities to the east and north of the land of Israel. They're coming from all over to see Jesus, and he is just bombarded with people coming to be healed and to hear his message of the kingdom. He swarms. And this is a great problem to have. It's great, but it is a bit of a problem because Jesus has this group of disciples who he said, come follow me, and it seems like he hasn't had the time or the space just to spend more intentionally with them. Uh, to talk with them, to, to teach them some things. So to escape the crowd, Jesus, he and his disciples, they go up into the hill areas around the Sea of Galilee, and they find a spot, and they, it says Jesus sat down, and his disciples came to him, and began, he began to teach them. Now this is an important detail for understanding what we're about to read in this passage. Jesus is very intentionally teaching his disciples. For a Jewish rabbi, sitting was the position of authority of teaching. In the synagogues, in the streets, out in the open, when a rabbi would teach, he would sit down to do so. And those who wanted to listen would typically sit down there in front of him. It was a position of authority. So he sits, Jesus does. And what he's about to say, it's not a conversation, it's not some suggestions, it's instruction. And he is teaching with expectation that his disciples will understand what he's saying and live by it. This is the beginning of what we refer to today as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a three-chapter teaching that Matthew records for us by Jesus. And this teaching is directed to his followers, his disciples, And it's all about what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to live as part of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What do we have to do? How should we see the world to really be a part of his kingdom? I think of this Sermon on the Mount almost like an orientation for the disciples. Jesus is going to teach some big things here. And then over the course of the rest of the disciples' time with Jesus, he's going to teach these things and show these things again and again to try to hammer it home. It's almost like an orientation. Uh, and trust me, these guys need to hear the message again and again, the disciples. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, this very intentional teaching about what it means to follow him, be part of the kingdom. He starts with what we refer to today as the Beatitudes. That word Beatitude comes from the Latin word meaning blessing. The Beatitudes is a series of short sayings by Jesus about who is blessed and why in the kingdom of God. So today we're going to focus in on the Beatitudes and what it means for us to belong to God's kingdom. So let's read these Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a theory to public speaking that uh, anyone who studied or practiced public speaking uh, will know and understand. When I was in seminary, uh, our professors uh, hammered it into us. When you read books on preaching or on speaking, uh, TED Talks, LinkedIn articles, whatever, everyone who studies and practices public speaking uh, knows and teaches this simple theory or fact about speaking. And it's this. You could have the best content of all time. You could have the most revolutionary idea in the history of ideas. You could have the secret to change everybody's life. But if no one's listening to you, it doesn't matter. And the theory is that anyone who speaks in front of a crowd, you have to answer the question for the audience, why should I listen to you within the first 25 to 30 seconds, or you're going to lose your audience. And that doesn't mean coming out and like listing your credentials. Oh, you should listen to me because I have a PhD in this and that. That's, that's not what I mean. The theory is about interest and compelling your audience to sit through what you have to say. I'm glad to see a lot of your eyes are still on me. That's good. <laughs> I didn't fail at that, I hope. But starting off a big, important sermon with your new disciples and some other people who have come and found him and are uh, sitting around and listening, starting off your sermon by just listing some things would not be how they teach you to do it in public speaking class. That's not going to generate the kind of interest that it takes. Jesus apparently didn't get this memo. So he kicks off this sermon with a list. Here's a list of some people who are blessed. But you look into the list, it's actually quite shocking And not just for his disciples 2,000 years ago, but it's shocking and should shock us today because people haven't changed that much. We're generally the same. So Jesus, he goes through this list. He lists some people or some characteristics of people and calls each of them blessed. But each one he lists and calls blessed is almost 100% the opposite of what we humans would conventionally think of when we think of being blessed. Poor in spirit, meek, mourning. How is that blessed, Jesus? It's such a counter to our worldview of blessedness. But that's what God does, doesn't it? Doesn't he? He doesn't value what we value. And his values turn our values upside down. So I want to briefly walk through each of these beatitudes, define them a little bit, figure out the typical human value that's counter to the kingdom value and why each one is called blessed or happy, as some translations of uh, say. So let's just go into verse 3 with the first beatitude here, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. Really? <laughs> the poor in spirit are blessed? How is that? Now, you might assume hearing poor in spirit, uh, you might assume that means a poor spirit or a bad spirit, mean-spirited, something like that. But that's not what poor in spirit means. Poor in spirit means, essentially, to be powerless on your own. My spirit is weak. My spirit is poor. And without God, I got nothing. I'm not strong. 
Now, humans, we don't value weakness, do we? We would never celebrate weakness. In fact, we celebrate the opposite. Self-sufficiency, not being a needy person, picking yourself up by your bootstraps. You got it covered. You can do it all. You don't need help. And perhaps the human beatitude would say something like, blessed are those who've got it covered who don't need help. Strength and self-confidence is what we typically value as humans. Needing anyone else, especially God, that's, that's weakness. Jesse Ventura, the retired professional wrestler and politician, which I just find such a delightful combo, he once famously said, uh, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. Apply that to Christians. Christians, you're weak. Jesus is just a crutch. You're not strong enough on your own. And I would tell Jesse, amen, brother. Preach it. Yes, absolutely. We are not strong enough on our own. We need Jesus. Absolutely. That's the whole gospel message, that we can't save ourselves, so God sent Jesus to save us. We are indeed weak. The kingdom of God value is not human self-sufficiency, but God dependency. He is strong when we are weak, and we are weak. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God because the poor in spirit need a king. We need a good king, a powerful king, a king who does not shame us for our weakness, but is strong for us. So yes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Second beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Mourning is not limited to that time of personal loss and grief that comes with losing a loved one or a friend, though it's certainly part of what Jesus is saying in here. When Jesus says those who mourn, what he expands that definition to mean is those who live a life of mourning, whose situation is wretched, who live a hard life, who wake up every morning wondering how they're going to make it through the day, those who live a life of mourning. And our human value would value people who don't complain and don't mourn, right? Suck it up, get on with it, get over it, put your head down, do what you got to do, move on. There's no room for mourning, especially when it has to do with a mistake that you've made or a decision that you've made that put you in your circumstances. The human beatitude might say something like, blessed are those who, who suck it up and get on with it, who don't complain. But God values the mourner. He sees you. He sees your hardship. He sees your grief and the brokenness of your heart. And God promises that you will be comforted, that his comforting hand is upon you now and forever. The hope of a future where God promises, as he does in the book of Revelation, that he's coming again to wipe every tear from our eyes, 
that there will be no crying or mourning or pain anymore. That hope and that promise is your blessedness, that God has a better future and he is with you now in your mourning. You don't have to put your head down and get on with it because God is your comfort and he is with you. The third beatitude, Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And when you hear the word meek, what do you think of? You think of someone who's weak, powerless, small, feeble, meek. And it does mean that. But the sense that Jesus uses it here is also more than that. It also means how you carry yourself. Meekness means someone who is humble and gentle, not aggressive, doesn't throw their weight around, self-important. Humans, we don't value meekness. We definitely don't value meekness. We value strength and power. We want the appearance of power and confidence, getting what we want. Appearing powerful literally pays off. Literally. Let me talk, for instance, let me talk about uh, height. Being taller literally pays off. We humans literally value height monetarily. Uh, there was a study done in the Journal of Applied Psychology a while ago that found that in the workplace, people doing the same position in the same job, on average, uh, a person for every inch they are above average height, I'm 5'8", I am the average height of a human man on the planet, okay? So every inch taller than me that you are, you earn typically $789 more per year for every inch, Okay? And they found that over a 30-year career, uh, a person who is six feet tall earns more than $165,000 more than a person who's five foot five inches tall. And the biggest correlation they found between height and salary uh, was in sales and management positions because of customer perception. A taller salesperson appears more authoritative and stronger than a shorter salesperson and can make that sale a little bit easier because we value the appearance of power. One of the doctors who conducted the survey, he says that tall people may have greater self-esteem and social confidence than shorter people. In turn, others may view tall people as more leader-like and authoritative. The process of literally looking down on others may cause one to be more confident and similarly, having people look up to you may uh, cause and still tall people more self-confidence. <laughs> and this is crazy to me too, but in response, in response to this like very uh, weird truth that we humans value that sort of thing, some doctors have developed a surgery called limb lengthening or cosmetic height surgery. You can voluntarily go have surgery to get taller. Now this surgery is apparently horrendous, painful. What they do is they break both of your femurs and then they insert pins into your femurs and using an external device, they increase every day those pins height a little bit more and it stretches out your bones and then they heal back together and it stretches out your muscles and they can add over months and months of going through that everyday tuning up to three inches on your height. And... And then apparently this is a really painful surgery and it costs anywhere from $150,000 to $200,000 to have this surgery. And people are voluntarily doing this because of the benefit it can have for them in the workplace and in their paychecks. 
They can get ahead in their business and uh, make more money because we humans value the appearance of power. Blessed are the powerful, for they get what they want. But not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, it is the meek who are blessed. It is the meek who will inherit the earth. The non-aggressive, the gentle, the humble. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. (laughs) We don't get to exalt ourselves. We don't get to do that. There's only one who is exalted. There's only one king. And it's not you and it's not me. God humbles, God humbles <laughs> those who would be exalted and he exalts the humble. He exalts the meek and he gives them the earth. The meek get to reign alongside of him forever. So I, it's easy to see the pattern developing here in the, in the Beatitudes, common thread, that there's a, a kingdom of God value to those who humans seem not to value. And because God values them, they are called blessed. Both now, because God is with them, and because their future promises of eternity await. So for the sake of time, I'm going to breeze through the rest of the Beatitudes a little bit quicker than those first three. So let's go. Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who want to live for God and see God's standards established in every area of life and society, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, holiness, justice, goodness, God's standard, those who work to see those things done, who give themselves to the work of God, God says, you will be filled. Now, the human value, we'd probably say something like, do what you want, what makes you happy. You only live once, right? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But God values you valuing him. And when we work to that end, to fulfill his good purposes, he promises to fill us with whatever we need. Joy, strength, perseverance, the ability to shrug off the haters. He will fill you. Beatitude 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy, rarely seen by humans as a virtue. We probably perceive mercy often as softness or weakness, going easy on someone who deserves worse. And that's what we value, getting what you deserve, especially in today's cultural climate, where, you know, I don't know if you've felt it or noticed it over the last few years, but we've ramped it up pretty hard. Cancel culture, social media, vitriol. Now, some people definitely need to get canceled, 100%, but we've cranked up the heat. It's rough out there these days. Mercy doesn't seem to be something we value. Mercy stems from a generosity of spirit. It stems from empathy, willing to see things from another person's point of view, what happened, why, and it's a characteristic of love. And God values us being merciful to others because he has shown us such incredible mercy in Jesus. So how could we hold back something that we have received freely and abundantly from him? Blessed are the merciful. Number six, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
To be pure in heart means essentially to be genuine in your faith. Too many of us like to appear good. We like to look churchy. But when we focus on how we come across, that's, you know, our motive is twisted. Our motive is impure. We're not doing it for the right reasons. It's being selfish. We want attention or reputation. And because our motive isn't pure, our heart isn't pure. And our faith isn't pure. And this is a big theme throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Especially when you go to chapter 6 and Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. And he says, as he's about to teach them the Lord's Prayer, that too many people like to be seen praying. And they do it because they want to be seen as being super holy. And he says this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. He says to his disciples, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. It's a good word for us. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your father who's unseen. When you do it for attention, that's all you're going to get is attention. Purity is a prerequisite for entering God's presence. So when your faith is genuine, when you're more concerned with actually knowing and loving God than with looking like you're a good Christian, that's when we get to experience intimate fellowship with him. Beatitude number seven. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Being a peacemaker isn't about being a nice, peaceful person. It's actively working to bring people back together. And honestly, this is one of the hardest things to do right now, to work for reconciliation and to bring back together people whose relationships or ideals are just totally broken and disparate from one another. It's the hardest thing to do. Our cultural climate, like I said, it's just insane. We're divided over everything. I had someone tell me recently, if you like Starbucks more than Dunkin' Donuts, we can't be friends. I'm just like, I know we're New Englanders, but what if, what if neither coffee's that good, you know? So, like, can't be friends. And with the political climate, being a peacemaker, it, it seems impossible. They can never win. You know, I've been accused, me personally, of being a radical on the other side of the aisle from people, right? You're radical over there, you're radical over there, or even worse, Matt, you're a centrist. You have no convictions. And it's like, no, that's not true. Just trying to bring you back together. And standing in the gap to bring people together will often leave you feeling alone, like you don't belong, like you have no home. But God says to the peacemakers, you are blessed because you do have a home. You are my children. Beatitude number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you live the way of the kingdom of God, people aren't going to get it. They're not going to get it. They're not going to get you. The kingdom way is so wildly counter to the way we humans think about things and do things. It goes against how we live and, and operate in the world. People won't get it. They're not going to get you. And they'll probably be offended by you. Hopefully not because you're being offensive, but because your value system is naturally going to challenge theirs because it's so often the opposite. 
And Jesus tags these words onto the end of this last beatitude as he talks about persecution and being blessed. He says, blessed are you when people insult you. I don't feel blessed when people insult me. Or persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you live the way of the kingdom of God, you have the kingdom of God. God is with you, and any hardships, misunderstandings, even insults and enemies, God is on your side. And that's where you want to be. The promise of the Beatitudes is this. For those of you who are lowly in the world, God sees you. God is with you. And there's a bright future ahead for you. Circle back to where we began this, uh, this passage. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's sitting there with them. He's called them away from the crowds and they're sitting together and he's instructing them about the kingdom of God, what it looks like to follow him. This is how he begins with the Beatitudes. So he's teaching them. But at this point, we know that the crowds have started to find Jesus and, and have started to circle up and listen in to what he's saying to his disciples. Yes, what he's saying is intentionally for the disciples. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about following him primarily. But because the crowds are listening in as well, I think there's a message in here for them too and for all of us, even if we're not followers of Jesus yet. And as I consider this truth and this tension about who this message is for, I have a question for the Beatitudes. Maybe I should say about the Beatitudes. Are the Beatitudes words of comfort or words of calling? Are these words of comfort for anyone who feels small or forgotten? Are they words of comfort for those of us who don't quite fit in or for all of us who wake up every morning thinking, how am I going to get through this day? And who doesn't feel that way at least every now and then? To those of you who feel that deeply, God has promised you that yours is the kingdom. He has promised that you will be comforted, that you will be filled, that you will inherit the earth that you will see him, really see him. You know, I found through my experience of, of helping to counsel people through the years that oftentimes when a person is going through a season of feeling uh, small or, or depressed or, or mourning, what's needed most often is not a solution. People are, we're not problems to be fixed. Oftentimes, what I found is that we just need to be seen. We need to know that we are not forgotten. We need to know that we matter. Jesus, in these Beatitudes, makes it clear to any and all of us who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who are uh, mourning, who are persecuted or pure in heart, he says, I see you, you matter and there's a better future for you. The Beatitudes are words of comfort for us. In a world that so often values the opposite of these things, you are valued where it matters and by who it matters, the kingdom of God. 
But the Beatitudes are also words of calling. Jesus is teaching them to his disciples, to his followers. What does it mean to follow him and to be part of his kingdom? The Beatitudes are not just information to be absorbed, and it's, they're not just words of comfort, though they are. They're teaching. This is what Jesus wants us to be and to do. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, this is what it takes. And he calls his followers to a kingdom-oriented lifestyle and thought process. The Beatitudes of words are of calling for anyone who would follow him. These are the characteristics we need to pursue in our lives. We need to be poor in spirit, to stop being self-sufficient and start being God-dependent. We need to be mourners, to, to stop pushing down and burying our grief and start properly grieving and admitting the brokenness in our lives and in the world. We need to be meek, to stop trying to look powerful and start being humble. We need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to stop living for ourselves and live for God's good purposes. We need to be merciful, to stop withholding forgiveness and be generous and empathetic. We need to be pure in heart, to stop trying to just look like we're, we care and start actually caring. We need to be peacemakers, to stop hiding and start standing in the gap to reconcile broken people in relationships. And I think we need to be okay with persecution, to stop being afraid and realize that Jesus says, when you follow him, people are not going to get it. And that likely means you're going to face some sort of suffering. He promises us that. It's coming. Be prepared. But in that, the promises, the reward is greater than the cost. So hold on. The Beatitudes are words of comfort and they are words of calling. They are comfort to those of us who don't fit the values of this world. And they are words of calling to everyone who would follow Jesus. This is what we need to be. And with each word of comfort and each word of calling is a promise. Promises straight from the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom has no end. He promises that when we live for God's kingdom, we get to live in God's kingdom. We get to have God as our king. We get to have God as our father. Feeling poor in spirit? Like you don't have enough? Well, guess what? God is strong for you. Are you mourning? God will comfort you. Are you feeling alienated because you're a peacemaker and everyone hates you now? Well, guess what? You are God's child. You belong with him. Words of comfort, words of calling. And from here, in the rest of what Matthew tells us about Jesus, we see these words come to life in Jesus' ministry, in his words, in his teaching, in his parables, in everything. In the ups and downs of the disciples, Again and again, Jesus teaches these things to us. The Bible teaches these things to us. God does not value what humans value. God's kingdom operates on a different economy. And if we want to be part of it, we do need to work hard to think with a kingdom of God mindset and live according to a kingdom of God ethic summed up for us in the Beatitudes. We're going to finish by reading the Beatitudes once more. Words of Jesus to all his followers. Words of calling. Calling us into the life of the kingdom of God. But also words of comfort to any and all of us who feel small or unseen or broken 
Words of calling, words of comfort. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you stand, church, and let's close in prayer. God, thank you that uh, these words of comfort. All of us at some point in our lives, especially those of us now, we've felt broken and like we don't fit in, small and not valued. But God, you look at us and value us much more than we could ever deserve or value ourselves. You tell us not only are you valued, but you have a place, you have a home, you have a father, you have brothers and sisters. God, comfort us. And Lord, thank you that these are words of calling, that your kingdom is so totally, radically different than our own values here in our human hearts and minds. And that's for our benefit. That we could stop trying so hard to shoulder so many things and rest it in your hands because you are strong and we are weak. That we can actually mourn because you are there to comfort us. That we can seek peacemaking because we have a home with you. Thank you that you have called us to something greater than ourselves and to value something that has true and lasting value. So God, as we leave today, would your words of comfort go with us and would your words of calling go before us that whoever we're with and wherever we find ourselves this week, we would feel peace and comfort in you and we would look a little bit more like you every day as we follow you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power, for your goodness and grace. Be with us as we go. In Christ's name, amen. Amen, church. It's always a joy to see you and be with you. God bless you. See you again soon.